You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We start with the developing story in Surrey where there's been another brazen and fatal daylight shooting. The victim shot while riding in a taxi and the taxi driver also seriously hurt. Kamal Karamali is live near the scene with more on what we've learned so far. Kamal. Sophie, in the middle of the day, around 2.20 p.m., in what would have been a very populated shopping complex here in Surrey, you can see behind me that a man has died in this brazen daylight shooting, a black tent that reads forensics, and you can see the yellow taxi cab as well, uh, where uh, the windows have been shot out. This taking place in the parking lot of a church's chicken fast food restaurant here at the corner of 148th Street and 108th Avenue in the Guilford area of Surrey. Now, the victim, we've been told, is a 30-year-old man who was a passenger in that yellow cab. He was pronounced dead. The driver of the taxi has also been seriously injured. He's been taken to hospital. Now, police say the deceased victim was known to police. The integrated homicide investigation team has been brought in. This strip mall filled with plenty of bustling businesses, including fast food restaurants, a big grocery store, a pub, and a liquor store as well. Now, employees of some of the businesses did not want to go on camera, but say they heard five shots. And in the past few weeks, there have been multiple daylight shootings, including two killed in Whistler, another brazen shooting in South Surrey at an athletic park, and one dead in a shooting on Highway 1 about two days ago. The BC Taxi Association is concerned for its drivers. I'm hurt, and also I'm, I'm very much concerned the reason it has become sort of uh, a normal day-to-day -day practice now in the metro, uh, which is not acceptable to the taxi industry, which is not acceptable to the community at large. Now, police are asking for the public's help in searching for a suspect. But once again, with no arrests made and the public concerned about a daylight shooting in their area, uh, police would not tell Global News when they would make themselves available to media to answer those questions that uh, so very well need to be answered, uh, once again causing a source of frustration for many as we uh, eagerly await some more details on this ca case. Back over to you for now. Yeah, a lot of anxiety out there. All right, thanks for that. Kamal Karmali in Surrey for us. Some new developments tonight in the bold prison break of murder suspect Robbie Al-Khalil. He broke out of North Fraser pretrial last month, and Coquitlam RCMP are now releasing new images of the men they say helped him do it. Ramina Dea joins us live with the new pictures and video of the accomplices. Ramina? Chris, local and international police are now hoping that the release of the video and images will help lead to the capture of the accused killer and his accomplices. Now, the images show the escape vehicle, which is a white Ford Econoline van. Police say two suspects helped free Robbie Al-Khalil from North Fraser pre-trial, a maximum security facility, on July 21st. How did they do it? Investigators will not say, but there are reports a plasma-cutting torch was used to cut a hole in the fence. Now, suspect one is described as a Caucasian male, last seen wearing a white hard hat, a face mask, black shirt with a high-visibility vest, and black clothing. Suspect number two, also a Caucasian male, 
wearing a black ball cap, face mask, glasses, essentially head to toe in black. Investigators have now established the route the escape vehicle took before it was abandoned. Al-Khalil is currently in the middle of a trial at B.C. Supreme Court. He's charged with first-degree murder for the high-profile and very public shooting death of gangster Sandeep Dure in the Sheraton Wall Center in 2012. Now, Al-Khalil could be anywhere. Police say the 35-year-old has connections in Canada, the U.S., Europe, and Asia. They're saying that if you see the suspects, do not approach. Call 911. Back to you, Chris. All right. Ramina Dea reporting for us live. Thanks, Ramina. Now, a heated situation on Hastings Street today as city staff moved in to dismantle tents along the sidewalk. With many residents of the area having nowhere else to go and a large police presence on hand, it was perhaps only a matter of time before tensions boiled over. Grace Key reports. <laughs> By mid-afternoon, things quickly turned violent near the corner of Hastings and Maine. A large crowd faced off with police before punches were thrown and projectiles aimed at officers. It started after Carnegie Center staff called police, reporting a man throwing computers. He fought with officers. A large crowd became hostile, demanding officers release a woman who was taken into custody. Within minutes, the situation was under control. The city of Vancouver started the morning with the monumental task of removing structures and along Hastings Street. You don't think these things will be back here next week? Some started taking down their tents and packing up their belongings, but the question on everyone's mind, where to go next? It's a, it's a darn good question. Uh, honestly, probably nowhere. Uh, I think at this point, I mean, I really don't have any other options, so I'm probably just going to stay where I am. It's like the same thing with the housing when we had Tent City last time. We said they were going to get us housing. Nothing. BC Housing released a statement reading in part, we have been clear with the City of Vancouver and Vancouver Fire Rescue Services that on short notice, we do not have access to large numbers of new spaces in Vancouver to accommodate the timing of the emergency order. Vancouver Fire issued the removal order on July 25th. So far this year, there have been 1,016 fires causing damage in the area. Hastings between Maine and Columbia was blocked off while tourists looked on. Work began in areas designated as high risk starting in front of the vacant Regent Hotel. The challenge that we'd have with uh, putting up any kind of ladders into these buildings and supplying water into this building right now is completely inaccessible. So there is a fire department connection um, on the building somewhere and there is no indication of where that is right now. Their possessions will stay with them or we're not going to be removing any possessions from them. And we have storage options for them. Temporary storage has been arranged for people's belongings as crews start with the cleanup. The work is expected to continue in the coming weeks. Grace Key, Global News. The Karameos Creek wildfire is still growing, but there is some hope for evacuees tonight because it's burning away from homes. Still, the uncertainty is plaguing those who've had to leave, wondering when they'll be able to go back and what they'll be returning to. Imad Agahi is live in Oliver Forest tonight with the latest on the firefight. Imad? Well, Chris, adding to that uncertainty is the fact that no one yet knows for sure what that weather system that is expected to bring wind and perhaps lightning tomorrow will do when it comes to fire activity in the area. But that weather event is what crews here on the ground have been training for all week. I took a picture of the house not knowing if it's still going to be that way when we come back. 
Brian and Betty Vanderbeek can only wait. Watch. On the far side is where the smoke was last night. And wonder. Not knowing what's going on and not being able to go back even to find out, like, is it really close to our place? Is it not really close to our place? That's the hard part. Evacuated and staying in Karameas for a fifth day now. Their house sits only a few kilometers behind this roadblock on Highway 3A. So close, yet seeming so far. The Karameas Creek wildfire now measuring at 6,800 hectares. Growing still, but slower and in the direction away from areas of concern. When fire is moving away from areas of concern, we're talking about the high-density places that people are living, and it's, it's now burning in areas where it's not Im- impacting um, people other than our firefighters. Which is the goal at the moment, correct? That's correct. The cloud cover and light rain providing an opportunity for crews to push harder. It is a little bit cooler, but usually with this weather, it brings a little bit of wind, so we got to still be on our toes out there. Uh, um got to be uh, strong-willed and want to be out there to be able to do this job. With the main focus now, the approaching weather system on Wednesday and the threat it will bring with it. The one worrisome piece of that is that this is just the leading edge of, a, of an upper low coming in. Um, so we could be seeing um, potentially some more, more rain, which would be welcome, uh, but it also might come with uh, potential lightning, which will give us, give us some issues. The Vanderbeeks, much like any other evacuee, anxious to see what happens next. I'm very worried about my house. I don't know what I would do if it happens to burn, and there's a lot of other people in the same thing. I'm retired. I don't want to go through this again. I've built enough houses. (laughs) I don't want to do this again. Now, I did ask a fire information officer simply if they are ready for what is coming tomorrow. And the answer to that question was a confident yes, that no matter what happens, they can keep this fire away from people. Chris. They are the best in the business. All right, Ahmad, thanks very much. That's Ahmad Agahi in Oliver. BC is reporting 16 heat-related deaths during our most recent heat wave from July 26th to August 3rd. Keith Baldry joins us with more on this. Uh, Help us uh, look at those numbers in context, Keith, because, of course, last year's heat dome claimed more than 600 lives. Mm -hmm. So what do these new numbers mean? Yeah, the coroner's office now paying closer attention to deaths and determining, I think, with greater enhancement of reporting, uh, just how many are linked to the heat. And the good news is far fewer than last year, of course, because the heat wave not nearly as bad as it was last year. But also we've learned a lot in terms of how we're dealing with the heat. So here's the stats from July 26th to August 3rd. 16 deaths, as you mentioned, Sophie. Uh, About half of them occurred over two days. July 28th, when five people died, and July 30th, when three people died. 16 deaths here a dramatically lower number than what we saw last year. In terms of ages, same story we saw as with last year. Older people by far suffering uh, fatalities as a result of death. In fact, uh, 50% plus a little more of the deaths are people over the age of 70. That's what we saw in the heat dome last year. People older are more susceptible, more frail and susceptible with weaker immune systems as well and more susceptible to expiring from the heat. Adrian Dix, Health Minister, also making the point today, we've learned a lot of lessons from the heat dome and those have been implemented. A lot of people reacted very differently to the heat uh, wave that we saw this month than they had before because that information was out there and because of the other steps we've taken. 
So in one other change from last year, Sophie, the geographical nature of the death, six people died in the interior and just one person passed away in the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. Vancouver Coastal had far more deaths associated with heat last year. All right, thanks for that. Keith Baldry in Victoria. Jurassic Fest was billed as a world-class expo offering a range of dinosaur-themed activities for families. After an earlier postponement, it was supposed to take place in Surrey this weekend. But the city pulled the permit, citing issues with the organizer. And now ticket holders are having a tough time getting their money back. Krista Dow reports. Uh, so back in February, we shared the initial warning when our spidey senses went off about the event. Blogger Tara Jensen felt uneasy right off the hop. Saw complaints from other cities that the events kept being postponed. Oh my goodness! Billed as a world-class dinosaur expo, Jurassic Fest was scheduled for this weekend at the Cloverdale Agriplex as part of a North American tour including Kelowna, Montreal, Calgary and Edmonton. It was originally planned for April, but was postponed and now postponed again, leaving many concerned about their refunds. We're seeing a lot of people that haven't gotten refunds. If they have gotten refunds, it's been quite a process of dozens of emails, um, credit card chargebacks. The organizer says equipment was removed from a storage facility without permission and meant it could not hold the event. The city of Surrey, however, says no safety plans were ever submitted. It's extremely unusual for event organizers not to file a safety plan and other paperwork, particularly when it's been cancelled or postponed for a second time. Other cities reporting similar cancellations and postponements. There was, um, I believe, Jurassic Fest Canada. Um, there was specific ones for each city and then they disappear. When the events no longer are running, the pages are gone. And they will continuously just post statements postponing the events. Global News was only um, able to verify one city where Jurassic Fest actually went ahead. Right now we are in Edmonton. The city of Edmonton confirmed the event was held in September last year, but organizers have not paid the full permit fees and have now been sent to collections. It's really, really long, all the way down to the parking lot. The Better Business Bureau says it has received several complaints about Jurassic Fest. The uncertainty hurting families ultimately paying the price. So many people that have come forward and said, you know, that that money was the only event that they could take their kids to in the summer. The organizer did not return our multiple requests for comment. Krista Dow, Global News. Millions of dollars to cut plastic pollution and layoffs hit the tech sector. The Vancouver companies taking a big hit coming up next on the News Hour. Look, I mean, are you kidding me? A friendly humpback whale gives a BC family the thrill of a lifetime later on the News Hour. Plus, lost the luggage. The BC ventriloquist who's no dummy, navigating a career that's had a lot of laughs and some tears, too, later. Right now, though, a Vancouver-based tech company, Hootsuite, is laying off about a third of its employees, one of a number of tech businesses, cutting their workforces. As Kristen Robinson reports, the return to pre-pandemic life for many people could be a key factor. They lined up around the block when Hootsuite was hiring 100 people in 2014, the year the Vancouver-based company expected to double in size. Eight years later, the scene is a lot quieter, as the centralized platform for managing social media platforms 
announced it's cutting its global workforce by 30 percent. There's really no job security in technology. Because tech experts say it's based on the market. Hootsuite will be left with just over 1,000 employees. The decision its CEO says, not a reflection on them or their work, but indicative of a change to our business. We've just come out of the pandemic, inflation's uh, sky high. So a lot of these tech companies are affected by this as well. Their revenues uh, are down, so they're looking at ways to cut costs. Last month, Shopify, which empowers merchants to sell directly to consumers online, reduced its workforce by 10%, two years after it announced plans to hire 1,000 people in Vancouver. Demand skyrocketed during COVID and the company expanded. Shopify's CEO saying... It's now clear that bet didn't pay off and we have to adjust. E-commerce just blew up. And so you had companies like Shopify who thought that that was now the new norm. That was going to be the standard going forward. And what we saw was a post-pandemic reset, essentially, where people's behaviors went back to post-pandemic. Amid high interest rates and a looming recession, Andy Barrar says the future tech is bleak. Retail strategist David Ian Gray says companies watching cash flow may maintain the basics and delay futuristic projects. Just we're cutting back on staff and resources. We may see next generations, next iterations of, of existing technology may be a little slower to come to market. They're just trying to stay lean. And more importantly, they're actually trying to make a profit now to show that their business is viable moving forward. Kristen Robinson, Global News. The B.C. government is spending $10 million in an effort to cut down on plastic pollution. The money was previously announced in the 2022 budget. It'll go to local companies developing innovative ways to reuse, reduce or recycle plastic and increase the use of post-consumer waste. The money is part of the Clean B.C. Plastics Action Fund and it builds on the $5 million uh, distributed to nine companies last year. What that money will do is it will help applicants uh, with uh, kinds of uh, proposals to reuse or upcycle plastics, to recycle plastics, to introduce new technologies to better process and uh, more efficiently recover plastics, and most importantly, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and keep plastics out of our environment. For access to the funds, recycling companies can now apply online. The money will be distributed in late September. Coming up, a patient desperate for the drug that could save him. At $4,000 a month, I think the average person can't afford that. A family struggles with the staggering cost of cancer treatment. Why the province won't help. And a report into how TELUS is challenging the status quo in health care. And why the government won't let you see it. A police investigation continues here in Surrey and 108th Avenue is completely shut down at 148th Street until further notice. If you're just leaving now, head over to 104th Avenue as an alternate route. Through a charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a police investigation in Surrey. A Vancouver man battling a rare and aggressive form of cancer has been denied funding for a costly but potentially life-saving drug. As Sarah McDonald reports, Manuel Perez and his wife are shelling out thousands of dollars a month because the province will not. 
It's a moment of calm for Manuel and Samia Perez with their 10-month-old daughter while the couple fights two battles. One with Manuel's cancer that returned for a third time in May and the other to get funding for potentially life-saving treatment. It's approved by Health Canada. It's a targeted drug. Yeah. And it's um, available, like we were able to have access to it, but it's not cost available to, to the average person. Manuel has a prescription for that targeted medication called entrecnidip, but there is a problem. The cost, more than $10,000 a month, an insurmountable price tag for most patients. Manuel's oncologist successfully lobbied the pharmaceutical company Roche to underwrite 60% of it. But still, at $4,000 a month, I think the average person can't afford that. And the province is refusing to pitch in, even a penny, which means Manuel and Samia are paying out of pocket on a single salary, left relying largely on crowdfunding donations. It was quite shocking that uh, BC Council wouldn't even consider... like funding, not even not even a percentage. BC Cancer, which is provincially funded, says there is no flexibility on funding until a decision is made by a national body on provincial spending recommendations. Telling Global News in a statement, Entrectinib is still under review. A final recommendation about whether provinces should fund the drug is expected later this year. Adding, we do not preempt this process. This drug is on the list for particular indications, but but not for others and that process is being reviewed. I'm a cancer patient. I need a cancer drug, and the cancer agency (laughs) would not help. And the months it could take to get a decision is time Manuel and Samia say they don't have. Caught up in a bureaucratic process and politics. We are willing to do and try anything at this stage. We can't afford not to. As precious time and money slips away. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Thousands of people in B.C. are without a family doctor as the province's health care system struggles to keep up with the demand. TELUS Health offers a service that includes a family doctor as well as many other health-related services, but you have to pay for it. And that has some people worried about an emerging two-tiered system. As Richard Zussman reports, the B.C. Greens are now demanding the Ministry of Health release the findings of a review done on these private fee-based health care programs. Telus Health MyCare provides you with greater access. A doctor available at the click of a button. I can at any time, if I need to see a doctor, usually within a couple a week or two, I can book a 15-minute appointment in. After Dennis Anthony Pillay lost his family doctor, he tried getting care through walk-in clinics, but found greater success in telemedicine through Telus. I think it's great because I don't have to wait for a couple hours at a time. Anyone can access it as long as they have a phone and working internet. Your health and well-being are everything. But there was more to tell us health than the free service. Currently, the province's Medical Services Commission is reviewing the Life Plus program, a small part of the company's health care offering, a program coming with a $4,600 annual fee the first year and around $3,500 a year after that. We'll see what that action is as this independent body rules in the coming months. But for, you know, for, uh, uh, I think that that, that's what people would expect me to do. Take action, follow the law, ensure that the law is strong enough so that action be taken. Health Minister Adrian Dix asked for the review. The findings, if fault is found, will be made public. But the BC Greens want to see the details now. 
the minister needs to make it clear whether or not this is a violation of the Canada Health Act and what he intends to do about it. Questions around pay-for-service are complex. Dr. Perpetua Nuosa works here in Victoria. She is now charging patients $125 per month for at-home or extended visits. Extra billing is, in general, not allowed like for medically necessary services. And so uh, in that case and in others, the commission would take action based on an actual complaint. Your access to health care should not be based on your ability to pay. We are supposed to have universal health care. Also part of the review concerns family doctors are closing practices only to tell their patients they can continue on if they subscribe to the teleservice. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Just ahead, the raid at Mar-a-Lago. It has to be something that impacts our national security. What FBI agents were looking for at Donald Trump's famous Florida compound. And little by little, the English Bay barge is disappearing. All the stories, all the action. From all the teams that come to play. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. Steady in both directions over here tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge with just a bit of leftover volume eastbound on the east-west connector between Knight and the S-curve. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Republicans and supporters of former U.S. President Donald Trump are pushing back against an FBI search of his Florida residence. It's part of an ongoing investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents, and it raises questions about the risk of any potential mishandlings. Global's Reggie Cicchini has more. As the sun rose over Donald Trump's Florida resort and home, so too did the questions following an FBI search of the private residence. It simply could be a desktop, a laptop, computer, anything that would have been there during a period of time. That time frame likely goes back to January 2021, when the former president left the White House for Mar-a-Lago and reportedly brought more than a dozen boxes believed to contain classified information. DOJ would not do this unless they were looking for something pretty significant. After the Watergate scandal in 1972, presidential records could only be discarded or removed if the U.S. archivist approved it. And when the president leaves office, remaining records go to the National Archives. This is about a lot more than love letters from King John Un. It has to be something that impacts our national security. The FBI dragged this whole country through hell for three years based on lies and deceit. Trump's family and Republicans were quick to pounce, arguing this to be a political attack. The attorney general has always said he's independent from the White House. I am not the president's lawyer. Um, I am uh, um, the United States lawyer. And the FBI director is a Republican and a Trump nominee. And given the unprecedented nature, experts argue that this was not done on a whim. A search warrant means that a federal judge or magistrate, neutral, not involved in the case, found probable cause to believe a crime was committed. Trump's lawyers say he has cooperated for months in returning documents, but his handling of them is raising concerns, given that on Monday, the New York Times reported many simply wound up being flushed. 
Now, this search warrant doesn't mean the charges are expected, only that they're a possibility, but even an indictment may not prevent Trump from a 2024 bid. However, this could lead to a quicker announcement and potentially more support from within the Republican Party and Republican base. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Well, Richmond RCMP hope a composite sketch will help identify a suspect in a frightening attack July 24th, just after 11 p.m. A couple at a home in the 7,000 block of Galner Avenue was assaulted in an attempted break and enter. The man and woman are both over the age of 60, and they were both badly hurt, hurt badly enough to need hospital care. This composite sketch of the suspect has just been released. He's described as a white man in his 20s, about 5 feet 10 inches tall, with a slim build and curly brown hair. He has a blue-green flower tattoo on his right arm. If you know who he is or where he is, please call Richmond RCMP. Piece by piece, the stranded English Bay barge is being removed. One end of the barge and most of one side wall have now been taken down. An excavator is hard at work on the other wall. The activity is attracting some attention from people on the seawall. Once all of the walls are removed, the deck will be demolished next and taken away in pieces. The entire process is scheduled to take up to 14 weeks. The barge, of course, washed ashore during a windstorm in November of 2021. A big food donation today for more than 1,000 low-income and vulnerable seniors in Vancouver's Chinatown. Volunteers with the group Gaia Cares at the Maywa Hotel today distributing 8,000 kilograms of rice to around 1,400 people. The organization says Vancouver food banks are experiencing a surge in clients thanks to the recent spike in food prices. But Gaia says rice is not often found in food banks, and today's deliveries provide six months worth of a diet staple that's more culturally appropriate for the people here. They may not be able to afford the same kind of you know, quality of food that they used to. And secondly, uh, of course, if they buy it in bulk, uh, it would be cheaper. But how can you expect a senior to be you know, carrying 10 kilos up the stairs as, as in this particular hotel there are no uh, elevators? The group hopes to do this kind of donation again, but may need to wait a couple of months due to logistics. Still to come on the news hour, throwing voices. Keep your mouth shut when I'm talking. How the jokes keep coming for this 80-year-old ventriloquist. Later. But first, the humpback whale encounter this West Coast family will never forget. As always, Christy Gordon keeping an eye on the sky, especially with this risk of lightning in the interior. Christy, what's the latest? Well, Chris, so we're still tracking this for tomorrow late in the day. I want to just quickly show you what happened today. So we're just on the northern edge of this upper level low that's going to impact us through tomorrow and into Thursday also. So what we saw was a little bit of cloud cover here, but really the greatest impact was in through the Okanagan Valley and uh, Kootenai region with some rainfall. Unfortunately, not enough in that Karameas Creek fire area. Uh, it, they were just sort of on the western edge of it. But another pulse of instability will shift in late tomorrow, initially across the south coast, 
Vancouver Island has a risk of thunderstorms and I've kept a risk of thunderstorms for the lower mainland, but it doesn't look like we're going to see as much action except for the Fraser Valley region. So this is tomorrow evening and this is really the time period that we're most concerned about. You can see from the East Fraser Valley through the Okanagan Valley and that includes that Similkameen area as well. So these are going to be isolated in nature. They will come with rainfall, which is good news, but they also come with gusty winds and more lightning strikes. And that's really another big concern is further fires being ignited as well. Uh, as we uh, look at this area, I just want to hone in on this area again tomorrow evening, but we'll likely see them develop in the afternoon. But again, that's the East Fraser Valley through that Okanagan Valley. And then it extends into our Thursday. It'll, it'll see a lull overnight and through the morning hours, but then they'll explode again in the afternoon on Thursday. Again, in that sort of Similkameen area right through the Kootenai region. So it's two days we'll be tracking it for the interior. Far north, lots of sunshine for you, which is great, but it's these areas here that we'll be watching from Kamloops south, uh, Hope east. Uh, I have put in some icons or some lightning strikes in these icons, but the best chance of seeing that lightning would be on the west coast of Vancouver Island. But just a heads up for tomorrow, but actually it's not looking too bad for our region. A chance of showers, though, certainly into Thursday we come out of it and it looks like we've got some sunshine for us uh, in the days to come, which is great. Uh, it's really going to be the interior regions that we'll be watching tomorrow afternoon and again Thursday afternoon. thought I would show you this photo. This is our central windows weather window from Karameas showing a little bit of haze there, but at least some blue sky and through the valley, as you can see. Thank you to Margaret Davis for sharing that shot. All right, Chris, back to you. Sounds great. Thanks very much, Christy. A BC family had the experience of a lifetime when a humpback whale got up, up close and personal with their boat. Oh my God. No, no. It's right under the boat. Alex Mount and his family were just off the coast of Campbell River last Tuesday when they spotted the whale about 100 meters away. The attention was to give the humpback space, but the whale had other ideas swimming right up to their boat. At first, his children were scared, but Mount says he thought the safest thing to do was just stay put. So I was thinking, too, maybe I should just start the engine and go. But then as I thought about it, like, I might startle the animal, you know, and all it has to do is get scared to flip the tail or things can get worse. And I didn't want to damage her, the animal, with a prop either. So it seems like the best thing to do were just, just go with it and... Yeah, and that's what he did, despite not knowing whether the boat would be flipped or not. Mount says it was a special and a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Wow. Was it ever? Mm-hmm. The whale wanted to go viral on social media. So. Maybe he just wanted his back scratched. <laughs> that too. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I don't know how you scratch a whale's back, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> he All has right. to do it himself against the bottom yeah, of the boat. The exactly, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> All right, Jay is here, obviously. What's going on, Jay? BC Lions back on the practice field preparing for their weekend showdown in Calgary. The Lions with the top-ranked offense in the league. So it's time to give some props to the author of the Lions playbook. Seems like he's one of the last people to be mentioned. Where in reality, he's the or he's the orchestrator behind all of this. He, being Jordan Maximick, BC's offensive coordinator, has literally worked his way up the football chain. He's the guy who's designed this high-powered Lions offense, and will introduce you to Jordan just ahead in sports. Sounds good. Thank you, Jake. Coming also coming up tonight, getting the word out about a BC ventriloquist and a career that's had some ups and downs.
All right, Jay Janauer is in once again for Squire and the BC Lions preparing for another big matchup. I was just checking out your socks today. Oh, yes. Check, yeah. Uh, might be time for Nathan Rourke to put in a call into Mike Holmes for a little Homes on Homes rental work. I tell you, the Lions' young quarterback is running out of mantle space at his place. He picked up his fourth CFL Performer of the Week award. Lions receiver Dominic Rimes also honored following his nine-catch, 91-yard, uh, three-touchdown performance. Rourke breaking his own single-game record for a Canadian with 477 passing yards. Also had a career-high five touchdown passes. His success and how well the Lions offense is rolling right now has a lot to do with the work of the Lions offensive coordinator Jordan Maximik. Lions quarterback Nathan Rourke has been in the spotlight all season long with four Player of the Week honors in just seven games. But he'd be the first to tell you that offensive coordinator Jordan McSimmick has been in the background pulling all the strings. Where he's the orchestrator behind all of this. He's, he, he and his staff have done a, uh, an amazing job of putting together game plans and uh, obviously they've been working out there. The game plans have been working so well that the Lions are averaging 35 points per game, nearly 10 better than Calgary, the next best team in that category. The Lions offense is also averaging more than 450 yards per game, which is also the best in the league by a large margin. It makes it easy for me when he simplifies things and is able to um, really put me in good situation with a lot of answers, and, um, and uh, he, he's a big reason for our success. And Coach McSimmick could be on the verge of leading one of the best offenses in the history of the league. I never um, thought of it that way. I, I just, my, my philosophy has always been just kind of be where your feet are and, and do the best that you can do in the job that you're in. So whether that was... Um, working in the equipment room, um, working in the video department, uh, working as a, as a coaching assistant kind of thing, um, quality control um, early in my career. Uh, I just tried to do my best in, in those roles and kind of let everything else take care of itself. The former water boy, now OC for the Lions, has used his wide-ranging experience to help form this potent attack, which is even more impressive when you consider that last year's Lions averaged less than 20 points per game. So what he might lack in arm talent and QB experience, since he never played past high school, he makes up for with other qualities. Extremely detail-oriented. Um, he's all about the detail. He's very analytical. He's a genius. He's an offensive genius. I know he's just in his room drawing up stuff and getting us right. He's a young guy that uh, loves football, has a great work ethic, um, and uh, you know, he'll, he'll do a lot of good things in this league. Here's hoping Serena Williams' time at this week's National Bank Open lasts a while because we won't be seeing her again serving it up in Canada. Williams announcing that she's officially in retirement uh, mode. Serena writing her own article for Vogue magazine announcing her retirement plans. Wants to expand her, uh, expand her family now that her health issues are behind her. 40-year-old is without a doubt one of the most dominating athletes that we've seen compete. Her 23 grand slams, the most ever in the open era and one short of the all-time record. Like who was playing her first match today in Toronto, Bianca Andreescu. Although she needed a couple of medical timeouts in the opening set, they were checking her blood pressure. They were checking her heart rate. They gave her some pills. She had some heavy breathing going on. She toughed it out, though. She won the first set 7-6. You see her going down after winning a point in the tie break. Would go back, needed medical attention, but she took the opening set 7-6, and the match has just concluded, and Bianca Andreescu winning at 7-6, 6-4. The match stretched 2 hours and 29 minutes, but she's off to the next round, as does Layla Annie Fernandez, who won her match last night. There's Rebecca Marino. Vancouver girl, now inside the top 100 in the world. 
She was in tough this morning. Dropped the tight second set, 7-6, after uh, winning the first set, 3-6. It went three sets, but she falls to Kunwin Jang in three sets. But local tennis fans will be able to watch her at the Autumn Brown Vancouver Open, and she'll be playing next week, as will Eugenie Bouchard, who got a wild card entry today. Men's tournaments in Montreal, Vashik Pospisil. For Pospisil coming out of the gate. Wasn't a productive first round for guys. Denis Shapovalov. Had his match last night postponed, got it going again this morning. He lost, as did Pospisil, as he fell to Tommy Paul in straight sets. 6-4, 6-4. Felix Auger-Aliassim will play tomorrow his first-round match. And the boys from Little Mountain are doing well at the Canadian Little League uh, Championships. They're 5-0. and Fingers crossed that they make it to championship final on Friday and then hopefully off to Williamsport, Pennsylvania on the weekend. Be great to cheer on a local team. Thanks very much, Jay. That's Will's League. I'd love to mention. All right, so. Up next, an 80-year-old performer who's no dummy, but his sidekick is. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you in part by Van Cam Freightways. BC owned and operated for 75 years. Attention, need the latest info on budgeting, personal finances, taxes, affordability, or any other money issues in this pricey province? Then get informed. Andrua examines Consumer Matters on Global News. Jordan Armstrong is standing by now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan? And Chris, tonight we're going to explore a hot topic. Is it time to reopen Riverview? It comes up often, and certainly more lately, given the spike in random, unprovoked violence, much of which can be attributed to severe, untreated mental illness. Riverview once housed thousands of mentally ill patients, but 40 years ago, the government of the day began to wind down its operations in favor of integrating patients back into communities. Clearly, that hasn't always worked. Tonight at 11, we're going to hear from Vancouver's mayor, the health minister, and the leader of the opposition. We will also explore some of the old promises made and the status of the property today, tonight on Global News at 11. Chris? A lot of people have opinions on that. Sure do. All right. Thanks very much, Jordan. Well, ventriloquism seems like entertainment from a different era, something maybe your grandparents would have enjoyed. But a B.C. comedian is keeping it current. That's right. Don Bryan has been it for decades. He got to start as a kid. And Jay Durant introduces us to the man making a career of hanging out with dummies in This Is B.C. Orders are coming in, so Don Bryan's bringing back an old skill he learned as a kid. And then I cut these from just from aluminum. These ventriloquists talk, and words getting around that he's one of the only people who can still make a hand-carved professional wood puppet. When? Soon. You're lying. Soon. Detailing is the hard part. It's been almost 70 years since his first creation, just a short time before his first paid gig as a 15-year-old. I was thrilled. I got paid five bucks. Say a bottle of beer without losing your mouth. Watching performances on the Ed Sullivan show was what got him hooked. For the longest time, this was just a part-time job for Brian, until he hit a rough patch in the mid-80s. Things fell apart for me. I lost my job, lost my house, lost my girlfriend, lost my car. <laughs> Everything went... That's when he turned pro, and he's been doing regular shows ever since. He's open for Dolly Parton, B.B. King, and once had to win over a tough crowd as the opening act for Eddie Murphy in Vancouver. He got some laughs that night and a very brief shout-out from the comedian when he took the stage. So you had a ventriloquist, eh? How was he? And they all went, yeah. He went, okay. So, moving on. 
Lost the luggage. Right. Now, at age 80, Brian is still performing in demand on cruise ships. I can see they saw your clothes. You didn't get yours either. <laughs> Which means some rehearsal time at home with these dummies. And the star of the show knows where Yeah, keep your mouth shut when I'm talking. You don't keep your mouth shut when I'm talking. Thank you. A lifetime in show business goes on because he isn't ready to let the curtain fall on an amazing career just yet. I love, I love being uh, on stage doing my show, you know, having fun with the crowd and getting the laughs. And uh, I enjoy that. I don't see an end to that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was any good <laughs> suffering. Are you wearing that big ring again? No. Well, I'm sitting on something. I know. Jay Durant, Global News. If you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. They kind of look alike. Yeah, they really do. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to go in that direction. <laughs> There's no chance. It's a skill that has learned over years and years, and nobody in these boxes has it. I know that for a fact. All right, Christy, last word on weather before we go. So a slight risk of a thunderstorm across the south coast tomorrow. Better chance from uh, sort of East Fraser Valley, Chilliwack, Hope, through the Okanagan Valley. So keep your eye on the sky tomorrow. And don't forget, when thunder roars, head indoors. Keep yourself safe. All right. Good advice for sure. Thanks very much for watching, everyone. Jay, thanks for sitting in. We'll see you all tomorrow. <laughs> Have a good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.